Hello and welcome to Science at All, a podcast about everything science sponsored by the Yale School of Medicine. I'm your host, Daniel Barron, and in this episode, I'm speaking with Dr. Lisa Masseri. Lisa is an assistant professor of anthropology at Yale University, where she studies how science, technology, and society interact to produce knowledge. She's the author of Placing Outer Space, an Earthly Ethnography of Other Worlds, which we discuss at length in this episode. And I have to mention, for about six months, Lisa and I were neighbors living in Whitneyville, and we really enjoyed speaking about science, anthropology, and pretty much everything else in the world, uh, usually over dinner, maybe a glass of wine until the wee hours of the morning. And I was also lucky enough to audit a class from her and can say, based on my firsthand experience, that she is a very generous and just all around wonderful instructor and human being. In this episode, Lisa traces her intellectual history from being an aerospace engineer at MIT, uh, yeah, that's right, a rocket engineer, a rocket scientist, to studying the intersection of science, technology, and society as an anthropologist. Our conversation focuses on the many ways one can be a scientist and think about science, of course, from Lisa's perspective as an anthropologist. So many thanks to Lisa for this and many other uh, past and, and future, hopefully, conversations. So here we go. Lisa Masseri. Obviously, we know each other. We're mm-hmm. neighbors for a little while. And so we've had a lot of fun conversations already. Uh, but I realized that I don't know a little bit about where you're from, your mind is from. Mm-hmm. So you started off at MIT? I was an undergrad at MIT studying aerospace engineering, as many do. Yeah, as one does at <laughs> MIT. Yeah. It's not rocket science, yeah, oh, well, except that it is. So what does that mean for me, you know, a, a simple neuroscience major? <laughs> a simple MD-PhD. Yeah, whatever. Um, Uh, So it is about how airplanes fly and sometimes not fly, and also the kind of gravitational world that we live in that allows rockets to leave Earth. That was kind of what I spent a lot of my undergrad thinking about. So the design of and physics of rockets? I was most interested in physics, uh, so that was where I spent my kind of any kind of elective studying. I was awful at design. I was, in fact, not a good engineer, but I really loved the analysis of, oh, you have all these things moving around in the world. Um, How can you predict where they're going to be in the future? The fact that there were equations to do that was, like, amazing. That was so powerful. Yeah, it is powerful. It's Mm -hmm. like, wow, we can make shit. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Land land rocket. And even, like, just understand it. Like, to be like, oh, you have these things, and they're moving in a particular way. I can tell you in, like... A hundred years, if nothing else happens, where they're going to be then. Um, I mean, that's more uh, physics than uh, aerospace engineering, but that is the kind of um, baseline of a lot of engineering also. So what was your favorite class? Uh, thermodynamics. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> I feel like I'm viewing you very differently now. Yeah, thermodynamics. Okay, so everything winds down. Is that, you know, the philosophical implication? or I actually, there's a lot of really fascinating um, 
scholarship in history of science and philosophy of science about when the laws of thermodynamics became kind of known and codified, how it influenced how, say, the human body is perceived. So example, like one of my favorite books is Anson Robinbach's The Human Motor, which kind of took ideas about thermodynamics and used it to model what an efficient body is in kind of like the mid or the turn of the century, so late 19th, early 20th century, um, and just the way in which science gets used as a metaphor to understand our own bodies or a different des- discipline um, is actually what prompted a field change huh. <laughs> for me. <laughs> well, well for, I, I'm really curious about this book. So was was the purpose of the book to show the energetics of the human body, like how we consume and distribute energy within our cells? Well, it was or? kind of saying that at the turn of the century, think about um, – Fordism or Taylorism, kind of the idea of the efficient laborer, that okay. this idea of efficiency comes from thermodynamics. So to even really have a model of what efficiency is in the world, you already had to have these kind of breakthroughs in uh, in the sciences that kind of said what is efficiency in, say, molecules. And then you were able to make um, or thinkers or kind of made the jump from the physical system to the social system and yet used kind of the language and the ideas philosophically of thermodynamics to say that, oh, well, maybe we can think about human processes in the same way we think about molecular processes. Um, and this is just like a theme wow, in history of science. I never thought of that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I haven't read this book so, in a long time, right. so that's about as much as I can say about it. But it is like one of the I, – I read this book in grad school, um, and it was one of those uh, like kind of light bulb moments. Yeah, I remember there was a book I read in undergrad about measurement mm-hmm. and how that revolutionized the way we view society. You know, these actuaries started to come out and measuring everything people do. That was my mind-blowing thing. But that didn't prompt me to change uh, fields necessarily. So that I'm really curious. I'd like to dig a little bit more into that. So you read these books, and it seems like what interested you about thermodynamics was the worldview that it brought to Mm-hmm. Other facets of it, not just the design and physics behind, you know, spaceships or airplanes, but everything. Well, so uh, I back-ended my way into uh, what I do now. So I finished my aerospace engineering degree in 2004, and a foundational or formational moment for me in my undergrad was 9-11, which happened my sophomore mm. year when I was taking all of the introductory to aerospace engineering classes. So you're kind of in a, play, in, a, in a class learning about drag on an airplane. The class gets interrupted for you to learn that the airplanes have crashed into the World Trade Center. And by the time I graduated in 2004, all of the jobs for aerospace engineers was defense. It was working for Raytheon. It was working for other kind of missile defense agencies um, or the government. And I was not comfortable with not having my own politics and ethics sorted out to Mm. go into an industry where it seemed like there was a very clear, if unstated, ethical or political um, motivation. Mm. So I actually decided when I graduated, what I needed was to take a step back and really think about science at large in society. So um, I had taken one history of science class my second semester senior year. It was like fulfilling the last humanities class. And so fine, I'll do it. it was, I was like, oh, and I needed to do a writing intense class. I had taken all these theater classes because I was like, uh, I had a theater concentration. So I had avoided critical thinking for most <laughs> of my engineering uh, degree. And uh, this fit with my schedule. And I was like, I like science. This is, it felt like a sneaky way of doing a humanities credit because um, it was, science was still in the title. So yeah. I thought I was really pulling one over on the system. Yeah. It, was this, it was like the other light bulb moment of, 
science as a history. How in my four years plus of studying science as like a serious STEM student did I not know that? And it really like shook me. So kind of that class combined with my unease of what the engineering opportunities was actually led me to spend two years in science policy. So I worked at a consulting firm um, doing science policy research, which kind of allowed me to get this overview of the system to be like, okay, we put all this money into science. Where does it go? What happens? Who Like, how do we evaluate whether this is money well spent or not? I, I'm not hoping you, uh, you know, uh, you know, go against any contractual agreements to secrecy, but what, what exactly were, were you doing during those two years? I was doing, okay, you as a scientist know that at the end of a grant, you send like a spreadsheet back, right, with all the um, publications, training, et cetera. Well, policy, quote-unquote policy work at the level of being a government subcontractor is taking all of those things for a specific funding stream and doing like a meta-analysis on it, kind of tallying up, okay, well, you know, in the NSF Scholars Award, X amount of papers in this field were produced, Y amount of people were trained, et cetera, et cetera. It was not the most intellectually stimulating work that I've ever done. I'm shocked that anyone ever does something with that. I assume that <laughs> no one ever looked at that again. <laughs> well, and did, did anyone ever look at my reports after uh, tabulating oh, it? That seems yeah, also uh, un- unlikely. But I did in that time also get to do this really awesome um, project in New Zealand. I uh, mm-hmm. went around New Zealand interviewing scientists at government-funded agencies doing a similar evaluation. So, it, you know, in the U.S., NSF is huge, and so there's not much impact you can make, right? You kind of tally the numbers. You say back, yes, this was, a, you know, for X dollars spent in research, why publications were spent. Hmm. Um, and so, you know, the company I was working with had a reputation of doing this kind of work. There's not that many companies that do it. And so New Zealand had a funding stream that they had not yet evaluated, and Um, Through like an international competition, my company won the contract for this this evaluation in New Zealand. Like a New Zealand NSF or something? Yeah, so it's the Ministry of Research, Science, and Technology in New Zealand, or MORST. Oh, Um, And uh, uh, because New Zealand has a smaller budget for such things, Hmm. what they could really afford was me, who was like the smallest rung on the ladder. (laughs) The intern or something. (laughs) And like uh, a senior scholar who came with me but didn't have all, just was there as kind of like, not a figurehead, he did a lot of work, but um, was the, don't worry, I know we're sending you a (laughs) 22-year-old to evaluate your biggest funding stream in New Zealand, but we also have this seasoned person who looks like they have a whole career. uh, so that was amazing. So I got to kind of go all around New Zealand, talk to scientists, and find out what they do with their research funding, what kind of—it was an applied grant. So I was most focused on, okay, so how does, like, the research in the lab translate into products or a commercial opportunity? And looking back on it now, I see that as the very first time I did field work. Mm, um, yeah, going and talking to people, seeing what they're up to. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so someone mm. who now as a career interviews and talks to and spends time with scientists and innovators, um, that was my first kind of exposure to another way of knowing in the world. It wasn't just tabulations of like what the researcher fills out on a form. It was actually talking to the researcher, getting to know them on a more personal and a deeper level. 
in the end, I still produced like a tabulated quantitative report because I didn't yet have the skills I have now. I didn't have I didn't have any way of knowing what to do with these interviews in any meaningful way. So I it kind of still devolved into just here's a quantitative report. Like, yes, you invested this much money and you got this many. Here's your ROI. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So So what sort of things would you talk to scientists about? I mean, was there any, I'm imagining a system wherein you are keeping track of what's going on. And then did you have any recommendation of what you're supposed to encourage people to be doing? Like, were you like, oh, I see you've only published one paper. Shame on you. You know, you should publish five or something. Well, I was, again, 22 or 23 with a bachelor's of uh, science from MIT in aerospace engineering. So I thought I was hot shit. Oh, yeah. (laughs) So I kind of went in being like, I know what science is. And like, there's nothing I can learn from you, but I can teach you everything. I was so obnoxious. I mean, I didn't, I didn't like (laughs) say that externally, but definitely my attitude was like, oh, New Zealand. Yes. This is very fascinating research, but mm, it's not rocket science. Yeah, sure. I'm a rocket scientist. Um, So, I I mean, I guess the – it was so, I think, presumptuous that we would actually have anything to say because, again, I wasn't trained in this. And I think there really is expertise to policy – to policy evaluation, like – to all these methods that I was just like, well, whatever, I have like a degree in engineering, I'm sure I can do anything. And I often feel quite bad about uh, the, in many ways, kind of the U.S. imperialism that was like mm-hmm. kind of smuggled into this project. Of, oh, interesting. Of going so you abroad. were there to teach them how things are done in the U.S., like well, more specifically. I think that there was a, re- I mean, the reason they looked outside of New Zealand for this um, for this evaluation was precisely because they were hoping that, yeah, we bring in a bunch of U.S., experts, Mm. and they can help make the science system more broadly um, or more generally productive. And it wasn't about patents or publications. It was actually, this was a fund that was about converting scientific research into into products. It was more about commercialization. It was like, how do we push economic development in a country like Mm. New Zealand? So not just papers, but patents? Is that what you're looking for? Patents and like uh, uh, new inventions, things that are on some kind of commercialization platform, Hmm. all this stuff that people get PhDs in and study. And simply because we were like, ooh, New Zealand, that would be fun. Uh, We got the grant. Hmm. Um, And it was a wonderful experience for me. I learned a tremendous amount. And I feel like I did the best I could do. You know, I, I took a tally of everything that I thought that we could look at. I used other experience that I had in evaluating NSF grants, and I kind of applied it to New Zealand. But now as an anthropologist, I think a lot about how, well, New Zealand just has a completely different research culture and research scene, and there's different re- different resources, a different history. There's all these ways in which I think actually to do an appropriate evaluation, you would have needed a lot more resources and a lot more time. Um, but I think having the, like, glossy sheen of an American consulting company that has also worked for NSF as a client Mm. was what, in fact, the funders in New Zealand did need because what they were basically trying to do is from the government get an extension on this fund to fund it for another five years or 10 years. And so we- So like convince their Congress to not cut their budget. Yeah. And so we were able to provide that as far as I know. I haven't looked to see if uh, this particular fund is still in existence, but- well, hopefully, um, they, hopefully your report didn't, you know, 
bring an end to that. <laughs> well, well, so that was the world. That was the scintillating world of policy research. So you go around to different labs. You see what people are up to, and you're very personable. So I imagine you're talking to them about their motivations, what they're interested in, things like that. No, because I didn't know anything then. I had like a very clear interview script that we oh. had kind of come up with in advance of like these are the things that we normally ask researchers in the U.S. And so we're just going to ask researchers in New Zealand. And you know, I had this like senior researcher with me. And I was really the PI on the project because I was the one who was employed by the company that got the contract and we had mm. hired this like external consultant um, as a consultant because that's mm. the world that it was mm. uh, or that often policy research and consulting is. And um, we would be sitting in an interview with a researcher, and I would be very diligently trying to tick away at all of the questions because, again, I was very close to my engineering education, and I believe that, like, systematicity and quantitative um, kind of uh, data was the way that we were going to offer, quote-unquote, truth mm. to um, the funders. And I had this person sitting next to me who was has much more experience, and he was always kind of going on what I, I saw at the time as tangents, huh. right? Like kind of leading the conversation into a place that I was like, that's not the question on the list. And really <laughs> trying to skirt us back to the questions I had and thinking like, I know how to do this. This is like, this is a method that I, you know, I pioneered and invented how to do this interview. And I can't believe you're, you're like thinking of me as just this junior assistant and aren't letting me drive the conversation. Yeah. And again, retrospectively, it's kind of amazing to look at that because now I'm much more of uh, the kind of research I do and the, my own method is much more similar to the senior person that I was. Um, so how did they differ? What sort of questions was he asking? Oh, this is so long ago. I couldn't even well, articulate just it. Well, just abstractly. Like, was it more of a process question? Like, how do you run a lab meeting or? No, it was probably more like details on the science itself. Hmm. Um, you know, asking like follow-up. Probably like a curious, someone who might be curious about science, the kind of question they would ask up. Like, oh, well, is, oh, how do you actually, uh, um what does this number mean? Or like, what did these tests show? And to me, I read it as much more of a cur curiosity of just like, oh, this is an interesting person who has interesting ideas and let me try to extract some of them. Yeah. And maybe it was. Like, I don't think there was actually a higher methodological purpose, to be honest. Mm. Um, but that was, yeah, I don't know. So that was your first foray into uh, anthropology? Can I think of it like that? Maybe well, I think it was really bad anthropology. Maybe, yeah. um, it was my first foray into qualitative research. Okay. And so after the two years, you signed up for grad school? Yeah. So then I was – so I had already been disillusioned with engineering. Uh, working for two years made me disillusioned with both working and uh, <laughs> <laughs> and with uh, science policy, which felt like it was just like pencil pushing. I was like, okay. well, this isn't actually enacting any kind of change. And so I thought about that one class that really influenced me in undergrad, which was yeah. the rise of the history of science. And I thought, oh, well, maybe I'll, maybe I'll be a historian of science. So I applied to a bunch of grad programs that um, after, like, Googling around, I found that were, like, history of science programs. And uh, I got rejected from nearly all of them because I was mm. so unqualified mm. <laughs> to undertake a graduate degree given my background. And I didn't know how to write a personal statement. It was just, I God, I'm really glad I had a computer crash. And so I actually don't have that personal statement on record because <laughs> I think it would be deeply embarrassing. Um, but uh, I did 
get into my alma mater, which is MIT, because I was still living in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and I was able to kind of like show up and meet some faculty. And a lot of faculty there are really passionate about bringing engineers into their program and to like giving like, a, you know, a, an engineer the tools to actually be a different kind of thinker. Um, historically, a lot of the PhD students in my in my graduate program come from un- non-traditional backgrounds. And so mm. not having this kind of no, not knowing how to talk in the language of history or social science wasn't as much of a detriment on my application at MIT than it was at every other place I applied to pretty much. that's what MIT wanted to do. Because that was, yeah, and it was part of just like the mission of the founding of the program. So I got really lucky uh, because MIT is a, does have history of science, but the way history of science is taught at MIT is actually an interdisciplinary approach that's more broadly known as science and technology studies, or Mm. STS, or science, technology, and society. And the graduate program is therefore organized around kind of an interdisciplinary approach to thinking about science and technology that is drawn from methods in both um, history and anthropology. Mm. So it wasn't until I was actually enrolled in uh, my uh, graduate degree program known as HASTS, which is the History Anthropology of Science, Technology, and Society, did I know what anthropology was. So I was already like a PhD candidate (laughs) pretty much in the field. And I took a, uh, as part of our core curriculum, we took a class in social theory, which is kind of, um, you know, anthropological theories, different ways of thinking about the human. Mm. And that's when I was like, oh, well, this is the hardest thing I've ever done. Like, this is hands down the most challenging class I've ever took where I felt like I learned the most and just had literally a lifetime of learning that I would need to do to ever really master it. And as someone— What was something that struck you as unusual or novel or— I mean, everything everything was. So basically the class starts with, like, Marx and Durkheim and Weber, three people who kind of I had caricature understandings of, or probably only Marx. I probably had never actually heard of Durkheim or Weber. Um, and and then we kind of marched through like all these progress or progression of different theories about the human. And the fact that like there were multiple ways of thinking about the human and human sociality and something like politics or um, relations was just... I couldn't I couldn't believe it that just the sheer diversity of theories of human sociality and human being was something that was so different than say aerospace engineering where there's a much more clear idea of progress right you're not necessarily reading back early 20th century thinkers sometimes there yeah sometimes there's laws like um you know mock you know there's certain or brunel there's certain like thinkers that become equations that you therefore still apply in like kind of contemporary engineering settings. But there wasn't a sense that you would revisit those equations and tinker with them and maybe see them in a new light. It was it was a it's a narrative of progress, right? That you start at A and every kind of move along the step of history, you get a little bit better and a little bit sharper. And that's kind of the engineering and the science model in general. And then here I was all of a sudden learning about something like social science and social theory where it wasn't like, well, this theory is better than that theory. It was like, these are different theories of explanation. And depending on the context, depending on the situation, depending on what you're interested in learning about, 
that is when you kind of can choose or decide what theory might be most useful. So it just kind of went from having one lens of seeing the world to having a kaleidoscope for seeing the world. And that creativity in social science to me was all about figuring out what lenses you could use and combine together that would always give you a different picture of the world. And that mm. is just exciting. So in aerospace engineering, there was an objective reality that you could model with equations and predict with those same equations. Whereas if you're thinking of something like, why are people unhappy? Then mm -hmm. Marx would have this, you know, like, oh, we're unhappy because there's, I don't know, inequality. We're separated from the product. And Durkheim would be the... We have no participation in society or something. <laughs> I don't know. Well, I mean, yeah, I think that's, that's such a great uh, example, right? And I think the point is, well, we probably can never know why people are unhappy, but that doesn't mean that there's no worth. Are you saying that it's not a low levels of serotonin in the brain? <laughs> <laughs> sure. I'm saying science is wrong sure, um, right. or incomplete. Fair, um, fair. And I think... As someone who really, again, was trained in a STEM mindset that there was a right answer, to be told that there wasn't a right answer, and therefore that process really was what it all was about, which is something that you always hear, right? It's process, not product. But in science, yeah, there's a product at the end, and you're really trying to go for it. Where, Operationalizing on a different level. Yeah. yeah and all of a sudden, it was just like, wow, no, it's just about thinking. And that was really appealing to me. Well, so maybe then it's like the way we construct our realities, which you know, I, I, that's, I felt that's what your first book was about, like the way that we construct different realities, the language we use to describe our environment have a large role in the way we understand our environment. And so, well, maybe we should just jump right into it. So you're interested in studying exoplanets or something. Like how did that interest come up? So you're an anthrop or I guess a grad student, not yet quite an anthropology student, and you had made contacts in undergrad mm -hmm. in uh, yeah, so, yeah. So, I mean, I think one thing that a lot of people get in grad school, regardless of the field, is study what you love. Mm. And um, I was like, well, I, I love space. <laughs> I mean, and that, is, cool. <laughs> that is definitely a through line. And so I... Uh, um, I was actually one of my roommates when I was a first-year student who was, a, who was a really good friend from undergrad. Um, and I guess she and I must have lived together actually since we both graduated. So we lived together while we both—she had started grad school before me, but she was a graduate student at MIT in planetary science. And um, I—you we, know, we would just be talking like kind of late at night or just, how's your day? What are you doing? What are you thinking about? And I started grad school in 2006, which was the year when Pluto was demoted. Oh, yeah. You uh, have that. You know, that's how you start your book. I mean, that's in the intro. I thought yeah. that was fascinating. Yeah. So Pluto gets demoted in 2006 from planet to dwarf planet. And my friend, yeah. who was a planetary scientist, was like, knew everything that was happening. And she was able to show me this really cool archive of a mailing list hmm. of enthusiasts about minor planets. And <laughs> Of course that exists, right? <laughs> and I was able to do this, like, baby sociological analysis of it right from the get-go. And that got me thinking about the sociality not of, of scientists and of astronomers. And um, from there on in, I was like, oh, well, I, I'd already imagined that my PhD would be spacey, but I had been thinking as a historian. So I thought maybe I'd do something with science. And I had worked in policy. So I, I think I'd proposed a project that was something about like science policy and NASA. Um, and as soon as I started learning more about contemporary planetary science, 
um, I learned that I was so intrigued by um, how planets, which are like really some of the first astronomical objects that um, Western science had identified, had kind of known anything about, how they were still these really intriguing objects for the scientist and for the astronomer. And so I decided I wanted to write about, for my, for my dissertation, having kind of kind of entered the field a little bit with Pluto um, <laughs> and like kind of, why do we care about Pluto, right? Like that, I was so struck with everyone was so sad about Pluto's demotion, like school children were crying. Yeah, the, I, I remember that actually. Right? I remember thinking, because uh, I had a, I had one of those like plush uh, spheres with all the different uh, orbits of the planets in it. And I remember holding it thinking like, this is wrong. <laughs> I also had a globe at the same time that had the USSR on it. So I felt like there's a lot of instability in my world knowledge. Maybe that was a problem. Well, I mean, and that's um, that is part of my sociological analysis of uh, Pluto's demotion is what it is more than anything. It's it's like um, a shot across the bow of science. Mm. It's saying we learn science and we think that it's objective. But in fact, humans are behind it. And sometimes humans mm. um, make decisions for non-scientific reasons about the scientific world. And that's like history of science, STS 101. But yeah. here it was on this really public display, um, which became just super exciting. Well, so, so you mentioned in your book how Pluto being demoted as a planet changed its ontologic status mm -hmm. within like the universe, mm -hmm. right? Which I thought was a fascinating thing. And then you mentioned how its epistemologic utility changes after that. So can, can you unpack that a little bit for me? Because I think that is a theme that comes up again and again in your writing. Yeah, so um, in saying that it like its ontological status has changed is what is Pluto? And so Pluto was all of a sudden not a planet, but a dwarf planet. Hmm. And it was not similar to Neptune, but it was rather similar to all the other Kuiper Belt objects, which is like an asteroid belt-like um, structure that lies at the outer edge of our solar system. And in therefore, if previous planetary science might have been thinking about Pluto in terms of the other eight planets, um, post, post its demotion, it would have been much more tractable to be thinking about Pluto as one of these Kuiper Belt objects or as a dwarf planet more broadly, which there's a couple of dwarf planets in the asteroid belt, et cetera. So it puts it in a different class of objects, which therefore opens up a different set of scientific questions. Now, clear, this is not to say that Pluto scientists before the definitional change were not thinking about Pluto as a Kuiper Belt object. You know, they, they understood what it was, that it was more structurally and dynamically similar to Kuiper Belt objects than other planets. But that classificatory change, nonetheless, does have epistemological impact in maybe thinking about these broader classes. So then you're really only thinking about, you know, planets as the eight, but of course, those get broken up, broken up into gas giants and rocky planets. And so the whole classificatory hmm. system is really a little bit um, unwieldy. So could I think of it in terms of like a physical object being studied first through Newtonian physics and then through like relativity, like Einstein's Yeah, equations? I think you can think about that. Yeah. I think another example would be something like the platypus. Is the platypus a mammal or a reptile, right? It has a lot of huh. mammalian attributes, but it lays eggs. And so if you're thinking about what questions do you ask about a platypus if you want to understand its habitation better, 
Well, do you think about it more in regards to groundhogs or do you think about it more in regards to iguanas? And again, that like hmm. opens up a different set of questions you would ask. Oh, that's interesting. I never thought about that. So a, d a different way, maybe so the way a biologist might view it or a geneticist might view it, the platypus is like, okay, let's get this fellow's genome, string it out, and then let's do a comparative analysis with reptiles and mammals and see what it's most like. And then you ask questions. But if you're like an ecologist, like, uh, you know, someone who's thinking yeah, about yeah, yeah. habitat yeah. Um, and for, for whom a genome isn't particularly illuminating, hmm. how you think about what the platypus is and how it's classified would give you a different story about the kind of eco ecology of, of a place. Hmm. So what sort of things were people saying in your like first analysis of what was it a Reddit string or something like that of these people Reddit who were did upset? not exist. Well, yet. you know, well, you know, something <laughs> like that. The, yeah. the, the email list. chain, yeah. Um. So, oh God. Uh, I made the argument that well, classification matters, which is not a new argument. Scholars in my field say this all the time, um, but I was using the case of. Pluto to excavate how, in many ways, this was a completely sociological decision to demote Pluto as opposed to a scientific. Sure. Um, the physical entity of Pluto has not changed. I mean, we could call it, we could call it Poland Springs. I don't yeah. know. There's a Poland Springs water bottle. That's the first thing that came to me. <laughs> we call it Poland Springs and it wouldn't change the chemical composition of the. Exactly. Thing. And this is, again, this is something that like scholars in my field no. Like, we know that humans are involved in producing science and scientific fact and that oftentimes assumptions and norms go into get embedded in scientific ideas. And with Pluto, this was a contemporary case in which it was just so completely on display because I also had, like, studied the proceedings of the International Astronomical Union conference where they did the formal vote to mm. demote Pluto from planet to not planet. So the fact that it was even a vote that determined what Pluto yeah. is shows you how political it was. And um, all of the—this was, thankfully, in the day of online streaming and archiving. So all the proceedings leading up to the vote were um, publicly available. And you saw people getting up one after the other to articulate why Pluto should or shouldn't be a planet. And while sometimes there were scientific reasons, and in fact, there's a whole kind of scientific destabilization that happens in this moment, um, more often than not, in fact, the most compelling reason for why whatever what happened happened was someone coming up and saying, essentially, will someone think of the children? So this idea that they were really— Damn right. My little plush toy was wrong after that day. Yeah. I mean, the <laughs> fact that you even have a Pluto-stuffed animal or a planet-stuffed animal goes to the heart of what, what I was interested in the book more broadly is that planets take up this really interesting space in our both scientific and public imagination that's like quite unique, um, certainly amongst astronomical objects, but amongst like scientific objects as well. And it's because we live on a planet, right? It doesn't really uh, take a huge leap of insight to say why planets are special. Like, we like them. We're we, here. We like them. Yeah. It's, it's giving us all of our it's life familiar. support. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so, so yeah, I just got into planets because I was like, these seem like really interesting objects to think about. And my little foray into Pluto convinced me that I'd probably have a lot more to say about other planets as well. Well, so Mars then. So Mars was, I, I really enjoyed reading through your descriptions of how other people were grappling with this question of Mars. 
And so you start off your book kind of laying out this idea of outer space needing to be a place. Can you can you describe that for me? Can I unpack what, what you were thinking and how you came to that? Yeah. So uh, if I were a historian of science, I'd probably have conceived of a project that thought more about like was more of, of, of a piece with the kind of Pluto, the heart of the Pluto question, which is like, how did our knowledge about this planet come to be? How is it shaped by social, political, historical forces? Um, throughout my grad school, as I kind of said, social theory really captured my imagination. I became much more interested in questions that were centered more on meaning. So why do we care about Pluto? Why do we care about planets? Became a much more central question and fascination for me. And I, at the same time, was really being influenced by um, an academic field called critical geography. I'm sorry? Um, an academic field called critical geography. Critical geography. Huh. Which kind of was had all these other theories about place and kind of how humans and places are kind of co-constituted, how they matter, how we are like people who live in place and place, which is often thought of as very background, like, oh, yeah, we're in a place, but the place does, itself doesn't really matter. But the fact that we, of course, construct places and ideas of places and love of places, topophilia, as one scholar calls topophilia. it. Topophilia. <laughs> I love that term. I never thought of that idea. Well, and I just became fascinated by all these people thinking about place. But of course, human presence is what's seen as foundational to place. So I began wondering if other planets are places and therefore what it would mean for a place to exist that humans have never and might ne and might never be able to go to. Is a planet a place if no one lives there? Exactly. A tree falls in a forest it, and no one hears so that. And, and, you know, my, yeah. and my answer in the book is yes, yeah. right? I kind of then construct an argument based on meaning and attachment that planets— become places through scientific work. And in fact, the very ability for a planet to become a place is one of the reasons we uh, give planets um, importance within both scientific and cult cultural fields. What, what interested me a lot was how much effort people put into making a planet become a place. Mm -hmm. So tell me about going out to southern Utah and being part of this What's it called? The Mars Desert Research Station. Uh, yeah. So um, each of the book, each of the chapters of the book looks at a different technique of placemaking and place a different making, community yeah. that is making planets into places. Um, so I go, I'll, I'll talk in a second about Utah, but I go to NASA, I go to MIT scientists. I spend a lot of time mm -hmm. in labs or at observatories. But there's another group of scientists, primarily planetary geologists, who make meaningful insights about other planets by finding analogies with and studying our own planet mm. in using the same methods that a terrestrial geologist would use. And this is all called analog research, the idea that, oh, if I am interested in dunes on Mars, well, let me go to dunes on Earth and study them. And through a process of analogical reasoning, that'll give me some kind of insight into dunes on Mars. Got to see how the dunes change, what they look like, what they exactly. feel like. Exactly. Yeah, well, Mars is also appealing not only because of its science, but also of the potential of a future home for humans. So by kind of extension, there's a bunch of people who have created analog research stations 
in different locations on Earth, including in Utah, where they go for a couple weeks and pretend to live on Mars. And so in this case, it is an analogic reasoning of, okay, if we kind of pretend to be an early human outpost here on Earth, what might that tell us? about being an early human outpost on Mars. So it kind of takes the scientific analog and analogy work that geologists do, and it makes it social. It makes it sociological, kind of saying, well, let's do a similar experiment, but instead think about humans um, on Mars. And so there's the site, the Mars Desert Research Station in Utah, which is um, supported and funded by the Mars Society, which um, you can go on a two-week mission to Mars um, without ever leaving Earth. And so the people that are out there, they act and perceive and behave as if they were on Mars. Yeah, it's um, it's an imaginative journey. <laughs> so I right. went with a team of NASA scientists, although non-scientists apply to be to go on a crew. You know, we call it a crew as well. And you live in a hab, um, in the habitat, which is kind of modeled off of a mid-90s kind of actual, actual specced out mission to Mars. Um, and it's like this cylindrical, quasi-futuristic looking building that has uh, living quarters on the top floor and like a laboratory quarter on the bottom floor. And there are simulated spacesuits such that when you leave the hab and exit into the harsh Martian environment, a.k.a. Utah. Utah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You wear the spacesuit and you kind of move around the Utah slash Mars desert and collect rock samples, which is what a lot of early missions to Mars might consist of doing. And at the same time, they're doing a little bit of geology about that local site of Utah as well. Um, and, And yeah, so you basically play Mars. And a lot of the people who go and the people certainly that I went with are real passionate believers in human futures on Mars. And they know that they won't ever probably themselves go. And so this is the closest that they might ever come to being on Mars. And so they definitely play in to um, the, the fantasy. And it's kind of like, I want to believe, right? It's kind of like that X-Files um, you know, science fiction of it, right? Yeah, and so well, they're living yeah. a future reality that they hope will come to pass. But Yeah, and the whole um, hab and environs is really patterned on science fiction touchstones. Um, the names of the buildings are named for, uh, like, um, Kim Stanley Robinson uh, and other sci-fi authors. There's just a whole lot of um, – there's, like, Heinlein Way, uh, which is uh, the author of Stranger in a Strange Land, um, right. about – a, Mar- a Martian, um, which kind of connects the hab to the greenhouse. It's just like riddled with sci-fi references, which is insight into the mindset of many who want to go there. I thought that part was just fascinating. So they're really getting into the role of being an explorer. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think at one point you described an astronaut as a combination between a geologist and a cowboy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so like these uh, scientist explorers are going out and, you know, bringing back rocks and dirt and stuff. I thought that was really beautiful. Uh, there's, there's also another part, um, uh, the scene where uh, Stoker, is that how you, mm-hmm. you say her name? So the, the lead on the, the expedition uh, y'all are out looking at a, uh, a rock surface uh, with a different strata there. And so she creates a picture, like a scenario wherein 
150 million years ago or whatever the number was, there was a swamp. Mm -hmm. And she describes it with, could I say conviction? I mean, I Mm -hmm. obviously wasn't there. Yeah. And then later on, uh, a local, just one of the forest rangers, it sounds like, comes by and, you know, kind of pokes at one of the rocks with his pocket knife. And he's like, ah, this is part of a tree. And this wasn't a swamp. This was a forest. And so that really struck me as interesting because both of them are qualitative understandings of what might have happened 150 million years ago. And yet both people thought that they were doing some level of explanation. Mm-hmm. Right. And so how how do you navigate something like that as an anthropologist? Like that, that seemed very interesting to you. You spent multiple pages <laughs> documenting that. And so I wanted to ask you, you know, what was the behind the scenes internal dialogue you had while you were observing this? Well, so getting back to what I was interested in this book, which was about place and placemaking. I was like, well, how does Utah become Mars? I mean, that's a crazy puzzle, uh, you know, that I was really I was really interested in. Like, how can this ever actually possibly rise to the level? I mean, it's always going to be fantasy. No one actually thinks they're going to be on Mars. But how? what are the moments when people are more or less convinced of the kind of transience of place, of the way in which a place on Earth can shift to being a place on another planet? And this was a case where there wasn't a spatial shift, but there was a temporal shift. Um, But placemaking was nonetheless happening. And it was part of this kind of geological imagination about how places and landscapes are made and unmade. So we were standing in a desert, and there was this rock outcrop, which allowed you to kind of see back in time, right? That's what Mm. the layers of rock allow. And... Um, on first glance, kind of looking at a really interesting discoloration, one of the it actually wasn't Stoker, it was another geologist I was with, um, made kind of an assumption that, yeah, that this seemed like it was probably a swamp or a riverbed. Mm. And all of a sudden we were kind of standing in the desert, but we were able to imagine how, you know, 10,000, 100,000 years ago, this was a completely different geology um, that this was covered in water, et cetera. And when um, someone else gave their interpretation with a little bit more evidence, suddenly we were told a different story about what this place was. And it was no longer a swamp, as you had just recapped, um, but a forest. And so the way in which this kind of desert swath today on Earth we were able to collectively imagine it otherwise and basically as two otherwises based on just a little bit of um, information that allowed a way in which it then becomes not such a far-fetched idea that Earth could also become Mars. And so it kind of allowed me to, as an anthropologist, think through, again, how meaning gets made and how through different kind of scientific observations place, in fact, does come to be constructed. And there's a particular imagination, at least of the geologist, about how place can be multiple that seemed really relevant to understanding how planetary geologists were able to draw these connections between Earth and Mars. Yeah, well, that's that's later. So the idea of making a map of Mars was really interesting to me because I remember when these online maps came out. I mean, you described very beautifully the development of these maps, how these terabytes of data that have been sent back were put into a Google Earth version. And it was really interesting how in order to make Mars real to the consumer, say the map person looking at the map, it had to be in a context that was familiar. And so, you know, as a you know, a, a neuroscientist or someone with neuroscience training, 
this strikes me as something the brain does in order to create perceptions, right? To make sense of one's environment. And, but a lot of effort was put into the making of these maps of Mars and details like, do we distort the equator or do we distort the poles, you know, which is the poles are the more important part of Mars, mm -hmm. whereas they're less important here. Those details became more relevant. So what were those conversations like with those map makers? Mm -hmm. I mean, were they, were they imagining like five-year-olds scrolling through it, imagining, you know, a spacewalk or something? Yeah, so this was um, about six months that I spent at NASA with a team that self-described themselves or self-called themselves the map makers who were creating these high-resolution maps of Mars for public consumption. And uh, so they themselves were actually computer scientists as opposed to Mars scientists for the most part. And it was the question of how can we take all of this amazing data, planetary data that NASA has, and make it somehow more accessible. And so as themselves more on the kind of like space enthusiastic in space enthusiast category as opposed to science expert category or at least planetary expert category, I think they were able to make a lot of um, assumptions about what they wanted and what they would have wanted as a, as a kid. Hmm. Um, and the Which is awesome. Yeah. And the idea was that, well, how do we learn about other places? Well, a map. You were just saying you had a globe on your desk as a kid. Yeah, yeah. You had a little plush, um, <laughs> plush yeah, planets. Yeah, like a soccer ball size right? thing. Yeah. Um, and so... There's something that has become intuitive about exploring place through a map, which as you think about it, is that's not necessarily what had to happen. Like that didn't have to be the way that we came to represent and inscribe place. But over human history, maps have become synonymous in particular ways with place. And they maps become this like first foray into exploration, right? Before you're going on a long road trip, you look at the map, you kind of think about what your paths are. And so even if you're doing that um, you know, on Earth, let's say you're planning out a roadmap, you're already beginning to visualize the train, where you're going, you're getting excited about the adventure. And the idea was that, well, if we create a map of Mars that people could also, that the lay public couldn't navigate, then they too will start to come up with their own personal connection to Mars, that it won't, it will no longer be Mars as mediated through the scientist or Mars as you would only encounter it in a news article or in a scientific paper. Instead, you could have this personal interactive experience with the planet of Mars, and that would make Mars more of a place mm. to more people than currently it had been accessible. Did you get the sense that this was out of like sheer enthusiasm or self-preservation? Like, for example, if we want to continue Mars research, the public has to be interested. So, Well, I would say in general, NASA knows that. Like, they yeah. kind of understand that their funding is based on public excitement and engagement. And so NASA has a whole lot of educational, artistic, really creative ways of interacting with the public that, of course, comes from an, an understanding and a knowledge that public enthusiasm needs to be maintained in order for NASA's existence to be um, to be permanent. Like marketing, a marketing Yeah, division. but that's like so baked into NASA culture that it's not part of the day-to-day -day thinking about it. Hmm. Um, instead, these activities become pa passion projects. Um, there's a really fascinating, I don't write about this much in the book, but there's a really fascinating NASA um, department at uh, JPL, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Southern California, called The Lab. And it's mm. a group of artists that do two things. 
They work with engineers to make them, to get them through design projects, to give them other creative ways of thinking. Um, so you, if you're like on a mission and you're like working on your satellite design, you could like schedule an appointment with the lab and they'll like bring you through these really interesting creative ideation pro processes to get you to think outside the box. But they also do all these really incredible um, public art uh, displays. Hmm. So um, I was in L.A., uh, recently and at the Huntington, which is this really beautiful library and garden, they had this amazing installation, which was like it was shaped kind of like a an amphitheater. And you would go in and it was a soundscape um, and you'd kind of have spatialized sound. So you would hear a sound kind of going from the left of the room to the right of the room. It was more like a, a dome than an amphitheater. And each of the soundtracks was a different satellite that was passing overhead at that given moment. And it was kind of the sound that went with that satellite was designed to be somehow evocative of what that satellite does. So, for example, if it's an ocean monitoring satellite, it was kind of like waves. Mm. Um, the, uh, the International Space Station was people chattering. And you would could sit in this dome for as long as you wanted, and you could basically hear how crowded space was. So— uh, through oh, so this like, kind like of the, sound design. Like the purpose of the satellite, you could hear... You would just hear noise. It was more like just meant to be a cacophony. Oh, because okay. when you look up, you don't see satellites, especially sure. not in the city. Yeah. And again, this was like a NASA-funded project that was just getting people simply to be aware that there's so much satellites and space things kind of orbiting around us at all at all times. We're busy doing stuff. Yeah. <laughs> we have a lot of stuff going on. <laughs> Yeah, that's cool. Is that is that open to the public? Um, it had been. I don't remember. I think it was like closing in October. It was like um, it was up for a year or something. Oh, it was an no, installation. But they do this all the time, right? So this just goes back to your question about um, why, what is the motivation here? And I think a lot of people who work at NASA, particularly in like the public engagement um, arms, and honestly, everyone who works at NASA that I've ever met just like love space, right? I could have worked at NASA. Sure, I would have yeah. fit in just fine there. It's totally cool. Um, yeah. And so there is like just people find it personally meaningful to share the wonder of the cosmos with other people. And um, I feel like often as an anthropologist, I'm supposed to be cynical um, and say, oh, no, it's all about marketing and money in, in the end. But with space, there is just this wonder that I always want to make sure I keep in all of my writing about space because I do think that a lot of the people I worked with, their baseline way of being in the world was a wonder of outer space. And it was incredibly important for me to keep that wonder as central to the book and to writing about these scientists, even as I was trying to, you know, offer anthropological insights and ideas about space. So I spent, again, another six months with MIT exoplanet astronomers. And exoplanets were—so exoplanets are planets orbiting around other stars that um, are effectively invisible— because they are so dim in comparison to the brightness of the star, such that a whole lot of really interesting techniques are used to represent these planets in scientific papers for a scientific audience. So this shifts us a little bit away from a map, which is this very literal, um, figurative uh, representation of a planet that you or me or anyone else could understand. A topography, yeah, you can walk yeah. on it. You can, yeah, <laughs> you can. It's a, yeah, you you really can understand it intuitively because we have so many other things that look like maps and we know what maps mean. Versus in exoplanet astronomy, 
um, shifting away from our closest planet, Mars, to these more distant and invisible planets, you needed, in fact, a whole different set of representations and ways of talking about these planets, such that in the end, the same thing happens, which is Mars becomes a place, exoplanets become a place. But you have to do it through such different techniques. And I was so interested and excited about exoplanet astronomy during my PhD because this was in like 2009, 2010, when about 500 exoplanets were known. Now, over 4,000 exoplanets oh, wow. are known. So I was kind of doing my fieldwork at this moment of explosion in the sheer data. Um, but it was still at a time when each new discovery was really examined or it was just starting to fade, right? All of a sudden you were getting more clumps of discoveries as opposed to an individual discovery. But there would still occasionally be an individual exoplanet of these, you know, several hundred that um, people would wonder and debate about. And it was mostly because they were debating about all these new methods that were being developed to represent and think through planets. So in this paper, when they were asking, is this planet real? Does it exist? What they were trying to understand was, well, this is a slightly different representation than we're used to seeing. And can I reconcile this representation with an idea of, as you were saying, a planet, a world there. Can I translate this representation into a world? And that would allow me to say if, yes, this is a planet or no, this isn't a planet. So those conversations were all about learning a new language. In this case, it was about learning a new visual language and a new way of representing, again, these really wily, you know, mm. planets that are hard to, really hard to, you know, really um, see and find and, you know, innovate on ways of seeing. And so that was just an incredibly amazing scientific world that I was able to um, spend time with for a bit. We did a beautiful job describing it. I, I, I thought it was a lot of fun reading through that. And because I looked at those figures, which you reproduced in your book, and I couldn't make much sense of them. And, you know, obviously I have no training to do that. <laughs> but the excitement and the sorts of conversations that you document about people discussing, is this an actual planet or not? It was fun. It's kind of like, so in medicine, we have a lot of lab values, right? Mm -hmm. So you can take someone's lab values and numbers in and of themselves aren't particularly meaningful, but you can uh, like synthesize a bunch of numbers together and then create a clinical picture mm. in your brain. And that's what medical training is. It seemed like that's what they were up to. Mm. They were trying to synthesize all these like lab values for a planet and imagine what it was like. Mm -hmm. Is that, is that a fair way for me to think about it? I think so. Yeah, I think that works. And it, again, what, um, what is, what an anthropologist can do um, is to capture those conversations that don't make their way into the paper, right? Because you end mm -hmm. up with a final paper, a published paper, which is like pretty straightforward. Here's what I find. Here's what, how I found it. Here's what it means. But you miss these like questioning moments. You miss the way a paper is actually produced. And so you therefore you miss all this contextual value mm. that sits around a scientific paper. Um, but that is incredibly important to what science is. Sure. Yeah, data in isolation doesn't have a lot of meaning right? yeah. in the context. And which is what, like, science tells us, and that's what a paper is trying to do, is give one layer of meaning to the data, right? You don't just have a plot. You have a plot and all the text surrounding it. And then what I think that anthropology of science offers is yet another set of surrounding text that kind of further contextualizes um, the way science unfolds. Well, so your argument then was the contextual environment is something that's taught? 
Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, because what I was really interested in in terms of how exoplanet astronomers discuss a paper is they first look at the figures. They don't read it from top to bottom. They look at figure one, and maybe this is the same in neuroscience or your work. You kind of first yeah. look at the papers. I like uh, pictures. Yeah, yeah, you look at the pictures <laughs> I look first. At the figures. You know, it's like a shorthand, and you say, okay, do I, on this first blush, do I buy the argument? And usually, the, you know, often the answer is yes, but in this case at this journal club, the answer was no. And so it was after we decided that we weren't, we weren't convinced by the pictures alone that we then went into the paper because what we realized is we needed to be taught how to see these pictures because these were unusual. Mm. And we happened to have one grad student who had worked a little bit with this kind of data representation. And so she was able to also do some in-between work of translation between the text that described what the figure means and the figure itself, telling us a little bit more about what the telescopes might have, how they might have been configured in order to produce this. And so there's just all this translational work that needed to be done in order for the most seasoned of scientists to adequately assess and incorporate this new finding into their own kind of understanding of exoplanets. So so back in the day, we would look through a glass telescope with our eyeball, mm -hmm. right? And then we would see stuff like our, our retina, as I think you quote one of the, some review from the journal Nature is describing. From like the 1800s. Right? Yeah, it yeah, was old. old. Yeah, but, but, <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, yeah. but what the writer was really pinning down was this paradigm shift moving away from our senses, like our human senses, like the actual biologic, like transduction of a photon into a neural signal, mm -hmm. right? And then we all of a sudden develop these instruments that do that transduction mm -hmm. and organize data in a way that isn't intuitive mm -hmm. unless we're initiated or trained, you know, mm -hmm. in, in order to do that. And it seems like, it seems like the necessity of a percept Mm -hmm. being developed at some point still remains, but... So Lorraine Dastin and Peter Gallison, who are historians of science, have written a book called Objectivity and some articles about it that go through the different phases of objectivity and how mm. it evolves over um, kind of the history of modern science. So it used to be that humans were much more involved in um, acquiring data, right? That our body was the primary instrument. And you can think about that, how that is with like introspection and psychology, for example, in like the sure. early 20th century, late 19th century. And over time, they argue that objectivity changed from being based in the body, based in the human's body, to what they call mechanical objectivity, that we trust me mechanical sensors to, mm. um, to, take our our data. Um, and that was like a huge shift in how science was, how what something was seen as objective or not objective was with the rise of mechanical objectivity. And then uh, there's kind of a, another paradigm even after mechanical objectivity that they call trained judgment hmm. in which you combine kind of the human sensor with the mechanical sensor and you get this idea of an expert way of seeing. So again, an acknowledgement that the machine doesn't speak for itself, that it still needs kind of like a, a trained interpreter, but that now is what we think of as objectivity. So their idea was to say that over time there's different shifts in what scientists collectively think is objective or not objective. So whereas we might have this idea of objectivity that has 150, 200-year history, um, what we, what scientists of the time think of as objective or not objective historically changes. So maybe I could think of it like this. So uh, uh, something I've been thinking through in my, my own stuff is the difference between what a cardiologist does and what a psychiatrist does. Okay, so a cardiologist 
Maybe we'll use these objective measurements, these instruments like a sphygmometer or stethoscope. And in the case of a sphygmometer, I'll get a readout, a number, which then they perceive and have some clinical judgment to synthesize and produce something. Whereas a psychiatrist has no instrument, right? So whatever is before mechanical objectivity, sensory objectivity, <laughs> I, I don't know, like a trained observer. Um, so they're two very different mm -hmm. approaches coexisting in medicine mm -hmm. within those two fields. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I, I am also blanking on what they call the um, human as sensor um, phase of objectivity. But, uh, but yeah, the idea is that there are many different ways to produce knowledge. And an anthropologist produces yet a different kind of knowledge that has a different kind of truth claim and truth value that is attached to it. And that mm -hmm. looks different than what a scientist produces as knowledge, but both are knowledge. Yeah, well, it's a way of constructing one's reality, I guess. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much for coming in and for having this conversation. Ah, this was uh, I really enjoy your work, and I look forward to more conversations. Thank you. This was wonderful. Okay. <laughs>we hope you enjoyed that episode thanks again to lisa for being on the podcast and having such a cool mind and so much fun to talk to her during this episode and many other conversations we've had uh, you can find lisa on twitter at l maseri again that's at l maseri you can also visit her webpage, which is lisamaseri.com or you can find her uh, yale faculty webpage, page um, just at yale.edu uh, you can also pur purchase Lisa's most recent book, Placing Outer Space, an er Earthly Ethnography of Outer Worlds. Again, that's Placing Outer Space, an Earthly Ethnography of Other Worlds. And uh, I believe I purchased mine off of Amazon, uh, but I'm sure you can order it wherever books are sold. Uh, uh, thanks to the Yale School of Medicine for sponsoring the podcast and to Adrian Bonnenberger for producing the podcast, as well as uh, thanks to Ryan McAvoy for his awesome sound editing. A special thanks to you for listening. And again, my name's Daniel Barron, and I've been your host, and I'll see you next time here on Science at All.